You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. And welcome to Belaboured episode 104. In this episode, it's a blast from the past. We speak with our longtime friend and supporter, Gabriel Thompson, out with a new book about the legendary organizer, Fred Ross. But first, the news. While raising the national minimum wage remains an uphill battle, the Obama administration did manage to do low-wage workers a solid recently by propping up the other end of the payroll, expanding overtime benefits for potentially millions of workers. The Labor Department just finalized a new proposed rule that significantly raises the income threshold at which workers qualify to earn time and a half. Now salaried workers earning up to $50,000 a year thereabouts will be able to qualify for 1.5 times pay for each hour worked over the 40-hour standard work week. Now this is a boon for many low-level managerial workers who are technically classified as salaried workers even though their jobs overlap pretty heavily with those of typical lower-ranked workers who are earning hourly wages and thus qualify for overtime. This had previously left many poor managerial workers, often deliberately misclassified just so that their employers could underpay them, out of the overtime regulation. And now, even though they are earning salaries, they will still qualify uh, once they start clocking their hours up to this $50,000 threshold. Now, the White House's proposed rule is still pending, and it's drawing fierce criticism, predictably, from conservatives in the business community. One reason why might be who is benefiting from this rule. According to Washington Post, quote, black and Latino workers together comprise about 28% of those who stand to gain from the rule change. Uh, similarly, about 33% of these workers are parents, and 36% are millennial workers between the ages of 16 and 34. These are demographics that uh, aren't the ones that are getting ahead in today's workforce. Yet some advocates are challenging some critical exemptions, which you'll hear more about later, and the raise is still less than what some advocates had sought. But it is set to become the first major pro-worker change to the overtime laws in about a generation. According to the National Employment Law Project, quote, the new rules guarantee overtime pay to a third of today's salaried workforce compared to 8% previously. The main challenge going forward would be keeping employers from reclassifying workers or downshifting wages to offset the raise, or trying to speed up work to avoid exceeding that 40-hour threshold. So we'll see what kinds of creative tactics that bosses try to use to keep their workers under 40 hours a week. The Verizon strike is still ongoing on its sixth week, and while the Obama administration has stepped in to bring both parties back to the bargaining table, at recording time there was no resolution. News reports are saying that Verizon's profits are down, and in one of the most interesting and even shocking stories to come out of the strike, Verizon sent a delegation to the Philippines to meet with the workers at the call centers there handling Verizon's calls. Tim Dubnow, the organizing director of CWA District 1, was part of that delegation and shared his story with Belabored. We sent a delegation of three strikers, call yeah. center workers from the United States, cool. uh, with me to the Philippines, yeah. along with partners from Uni Global Union, which is mm-hmm. the telecommunications union that we're an affiliate with, a worldwide union of telecommunication workers. Yeah. Yeah. And we were joined by the KMU Union uh-huh. in the Philippines yeah. and a worker organization called Bien, uh-huh. B-I-E-N. So the idea was is to, you know talk to Verizon, workers taking Verizon calls in the Philippines. The idea for this started when we got a message on our Facebook feed from a worker. Awesome. It was incredible. In Quezon City saying, we are being absolutely exploited. It's horrible. Help. Yeah. And so we went back and forth and I finally called the guy and we went back. And that gave us the idea, let's go to the Philippines. So Bien is in touch with a lot of Verizon call center workers. Mm -hmm. And so Verizon contracts with tons of contractors. Right. And they have thousands and thousands of workers in the Philippines taking right. calls from Verizon. Yeah. And so that's what we did. And we, we, you know, we visited neighborhoods where call center workers live. We visited call center workers in their house. Yeah. So we could see what it's like to get right. paid $1.78 an hour yeah. taking calls for right. Verizon. And it was like, yeah. you know, what you think. It was right. complete people living in poverty. So then we put up a picket line with the KMU Union and BN at Accenture, and they didn't know what to do. The guard. We could overhear the guards saying, I don't know what to do. Um, and we give up flyers talking about our plight and how, you know, I mean, our, our message here was Verizon's trying to destroy good jobs in America. Yeah. And then they go 
chasing the cheapest labor and they try to destroy working right. conditions in the Philippines too and that was stronger together. Uh, and then we went to three or four other call centers and we gave out these flyers and yeah. talked to dozens of call center workers for Verizon. And then we did a very big rally outside of Teletech with yeah. like 50 people and they really wigged out. They didn't like it. And we didn't know at the time but we know now that this created like a lot like everyone talks in the Philippines and so yeah. the call center community yeah. that the whole country not just Manila but like all the islands yeah. people started talking about oh my god KMU yeah. and CWA are doing this and we started getting a started getting a lot of calls yeah. and then we discovered that the corporate office is in Alabang yeah. uh, which is like on the outskirts um, so we, went, we said let's go to Alabang and talk yeah. to the Verizon employees yeah. so we did that we were in a van the Verizon strikers, we decided to leave them in the van because we didn't want them to go onto Verizon property yeah. because that could technically be considered a violation of the code of conduct. Right. So I went with an official from Uni Global Union, mm-hmm. KMU, and BN, and we walked in. We went to the front. We said, we'd like to talk to someone from Verizon. They said, what's this in reference to? And we said, we'd like to talk to someone from Verizon. And like 45 seconds later, this the head of corporate security comes out yeah. with a Verizon ID that looks exactly like the Verizon IDs in the United States comes out. He's a direct employee of Verizon. Yeah. Who are you? So we say, I say, my name is Tim Dubnow. I'm with CWA. I'm here on behalf of 39,000 strikers. We just would like to know from you yeah. why Verizon is destroying good jobs in America and um, preventing yeah. good jobs in the Philippines. He did not like that question. And he said, give me your permits. Give me your permits. I want to see your identification. We said, what are you talking about? We don't need a permit. We're just here to ask for a meeting. I want your permits. Give me your ID. So we're like, we're not giving you ID. What are you talking about? And then um, he ushers us outside the building, which we complied with. Now his security guards are there with guns and rifles, and they're videotaping us. We're videotaping them, and he demands our identification. And we keep saying, we're just here to ask you why you're destroying good jobs. If you don't want to meet with us, tell us to leave, and we'll leave. And so then he said, if you're not out in two minutes, I'm calling the police. So we said, okay, we'll leave. So we were sort of in vigorous agreement with him. So we're leaving now. <laughs> we go out into the public street. He follows us up into the street with his armed guards. Yeah. So we thought, okay, that was obnoxious, but that's fine. Let's leave. So we go yeah. into the car. We join the fellow strikers who are in the van. We start driving away. We're on a public street in Alabama. We drive, I don't know, 50 yards, 100 yards. And his security guards, the Verizon security guards, along with Verizon corporate security, chase us down, pull us over with motorcycles and they surround the car with guns and they detain us we're on a public street like we're, yeah. we're not even like no, you know we're yeah. not trespassing you've already left yeah. so then we're like what are you doing we're detaining you then they call the police so we just sit and wait for the police so from like 4pm to like 4.30pm yeah. we're there and then the police come in a SWAT van and we're like that's not good. Like, no. In the United States, it's not good when a SWAT team comes. <laughs> it's never good when a SWAT team comes, but it's particularly bad when you're in the Philippines and a SWAT team comes. Yeah. And they had, like, the masks, yeah. like, full, use your imagination, oh, semi-automatic weapons. So then the KMU folks say to us, we're going to go out to negotiate with them. Whatever you do, lock the van, and whatever you do, don't let anyone in the van, which we thought was good advice. So we stay in the car, and, like, five minutes later... The Verizon employee says to the SWAT team in front of KMU, get them to open up and detain them. And so the, apparently there's a law in the Philippines where if you leave your car, they can ask for your ID and detain you. But if you're in your car and there's no probable cause, they can't technically go into the car, which we didn't know at the time, but we know I know it now. Yeah. So then a SWAT team guy hits the door with a semi-automatic weapon and says, open the van. And so we just ignore him. We don't open the van. And he doesn't open it. And then, after a lot of back and forth between KMU officials and the SWAT team and Verizon, where Verizon was really pushing for us to be detained, they called the chief of police. The chief of police says, bring everyone down to the station. We'll sort it out here. The SWAT team tells us, follow us in the van to, to Alabang Police Station, region number three, yep. which we did. And the Verizon employees hop in the car with the SWAT team. <laughs> right? I mean, it's literally, you can't make this stuff up. Um, and we drive for like 10 minutes and then we pull over. KMU goes out and negotiates and like a half hour later we're free to go. So we were literally detained by employees of Verizon and their guards with 
with guns. The KMU threatens to sue Verizon and the, the head of corporate security specifically for illegally detaining us. Because yeah. we run a we were like a street and a company illegally detains us. So that got them nervous and then he sort of backed off and he admitted to KMU that he was really upset when we came yeah. because he had a file this big of photos of us all over the island picketing. And he says to the chief of police, they should be detained. They've been violating the law all over Manila, picketing our call centers, uh, Verizon call centers, with no permits. And so KMU says to the chief of police in front of them, wait a minute, they were picketing Teletech and they were picketing Accenture and ADMI. Verizon's always told us that they're not the employer here. So are you sure this is the position of Verizon? Do you want to check with your boss to make sure that this is what you want to say? So he backs off of that and says, all right, well, they were protesting here. And so they show the chief of police the video, and it's like, they're like, there's no signs, there's no picket signs, there's no chanting. They're just asking you to meet with them. And so the chief of police said, you got nothing. If they picket Accenture, that you're not a party to that dispute. So then he goes, well, they were wearing red shirts, and that's like a, that was like a protest. The chief was like, you got nothing. But then, so the chief of security then admits to KMU that the reason he reacted that way is he was on a teleconference with Basin Ridge, New Jersey, corporate headquarters, just before we came, when they were pressuring him, like, what is going on in the Philippines? We're hearing all these reports. You need to stop them from picketing. And then, like, an hour later, we showed up at their corporate headquarters. So he was all like, ah! What's interesting is we, we were there at 4 p.m., yeah. and if he had just gotten a teleconference call, let's say it was at 2 p.m., yeah. that's 2 a.m. U.S. time, which means that they were at 2 in the morning having an emergency call here. Yeah, it was pretty, that's the story. That was Tim Dubnow, the organizing director of CWA District 1. And, of course, we will keep you posted on the Verizon strike. And here is a voice from the other side of the call center supply chain. I spoke with Michael Concepcion. He is an advocate with BIEN, B-I-E-N, one of the worker advocacy groups that's organizing within the call center sector. We're in a hot spot right now in the Philippines, uh, in the business community, because they're criticizing our stand in solidarity with the Verizon workers. Like, why are you supporting them that the jobs lost on them is our job gains here? It's job generations here. But however, we answer that like our solidarity, it's based on the workers' fight. It's a global fight of job security and, you know, higher uh, wages, a decent living wage. So therefore, it's it's not a matter of like who, uh, where they are. As long as we felt as an organization, they have the same issue as us. Like we're we're having issues with job securities. On a deeper analysis on that, we don't really need the outsourcing jobs coming from the developed countries because we are on the losing end on that. Why? It's because in the developed countries, this is the regular jobs, and we are the outsourced jobs, and this is a contract out jobs, and uh, obviously, this is a race to the bottom. What they really need, it's a cheap labor, and it's not sustainable because when they can find a cheaper labor in another country, these companies will go to the other country. The fast food workers of the Fight for 15 campaign recently announced that they plan to vote later this year to formally affiliate with the union for the first time. This would mark their first official alignment with, predictably, the SEIU, which happens to be the union that essentially sponsored their entire organizing campaign for the past several years. No big surprise there. But before those workers go union, they should note with caution what's going on down under, under the Golden Arches. There has been a big scandal in Australia with low-wage workers working for major chains, including McDonald's. It involves an already supposedly unionized workforce. There's been unionization at McDonald's for some time, but an investigation by Fairfax Media uncovered some savory dealings behind the counter, as the company seems to have colluded with the labor union that was supposed to be representing the workers in order to systematically underpay their wages. They did this by cutting a key weekend rate premium that workers should have been owed if their hours had been properly clocked. The Shop Distributive and Allied Employees Association, one of the larger unions in Australia, apparently deliberately undercalculated the 
wages, and the whole arrangement could have ended up denying workers collectively at least $50 million a year, according to Fairfax Media. The investigation showed that over 60% of workers at one Sydney's McDonald's location were being shorted on their weekend pay. In addition, the union is apparently also in a similar backdoor wage theft deal with another major employer, Cole Supermarket, which recently admitted it had been underpaying its contingent workers. It seems that instead of defending labor standards for the workers, this corporate-friendly union, which is generally known for taking rightward political stances, adjusted its rates so it seemed like it had been shifting wages towards the normally scheduled work week and then negating the weekend overtime rule. Instead, the workers' schedules were arranged just so that the loss was not offset and they ended up earning less than they would have had they had their hours properly calculated according to law. Of course, the bigger issue here is the relationship between the workers and this union. If the group that is supposed to be standing up for the workers' rights are actually in bed with management, how can these workers expect to see justice? A lesson to bear in mind for the legions of unorganized fast food workers here in the U.S., who are trying to take their organizing to the next level by making the union plunge. When it comes to organizing, it pays to know exactly whom you're doing business with. Way back on Belabored Episode 7, we spoke with labor journalist Gabriel Thompson, who had launched a Kickstarter campaign to help him fund the research and reporting of his biography of organizer Fred Ross, who trained Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta of the United Farm Workers, and whose techniques are still taught all over labor and progressive movements. But Ross's name is often forgotten, and Gabe set out to change that. Now he is back on Belabored to talk about the finished book, America's Social Arsonist, Fred Ross and Grassroots Organizing in the 20th Century, which is out now from University of California Press, and tell us what lessons we can take away from Ross's life. So, Gabe, you were one of our earliest guests back on Belabored Episode 7, oh my goodness, back when it was still me and Josh. Um... And you were just starting out with this book project about Fred Ross and raising money through Kickstarter to fund it. And now you are here with the finished book. So tell us a little bit for those who didn't listen to episode seven um, or need a refresher about the project and how the research and reporting went. Yeah, well, first, it was very cool to be number seven. That seems like I was a real pioneer on the program. It was. Um, (laughs) It, the, you know, it's like I mentioned it's it's good to be on this side of the book having the book done um i i had a lot of fun working on it fred ross was uh, one of these very influential very important community and labor organizers and you know best known sort of for mentoring both cesar chavez and dolores huerta who would go on to um co-found the united farm workers but he really uh spent his life in the background. And so while he's involved in, in many major issues of his, of his time, really as an organizer felt like his, his place was to encourage other people to kind of step forward. And so, you know, when I was talking to you many years ago, you know, I was getting started with the research. I had a sense of how many, one of the great things about Ross is although he, uh, or about the project is that although he was very much in the background, he created a huge paper trail because um, he kept notes, he worked for the government, different agencies, so there were archives all around the country to kind of track his work. And so I was uh, getting set to to go out and visit all those archives and do interviews and come back and and so the, the Kickstarter, which you guys highlighted, uh, was great because it, it raised some money to, to, to fund that work. Um, and then, and I'm sure you experienced this as well, you get back from the, those trips and you have, you know, hundreds of photos of documents and interviews and you're trying to figure out how the hell do I tell a story with all this crap I've accumulated yeah. Um, that doesn't run to like 1500 pages. Mm-hmm. And so the, the research was actually, was very fun uh, in a lot of ways, but then coming back and trying to figure out how do you, how do you create a book out of that that someone will want to read? Um, cause you know, biography as well is, is sort of, for me, it was an obsessive kind of pursuit cause you're trying to learn as much as you can about someone. And, um, ultimately everyone is in some sense unknowable. Um, And so you're, you're constantly each, each when I I would be, you know, in an archive and I'd 
pull up some document that would answer a question, uh, but then it would raise three more. And yeah. so you just kind of keep going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. On the whole genre of biography, you've talked about how there are sort of two types of um, biographies you can write about someone. Uh, one that takes an already well-known figure and tries to find a new angle on him and another one that kind of plucks uh, an unknown figure from obscurity. And so why did you kind of fixate on Fred Ross? And what about his career specifically kind of relates to our political moment that you think we need to know about him now? Well, once I came across Ross uh, as a, and realized no one had written a book about him, it was pretty obvious right away to me that that I would want to try it at some point to write a biography of his I think two things I was intrigued by one was the you know he's born in 1910 he dies in 1992 and he for much of that his life his adult life he's sort of grappling with the major issues of his day from you know the dust bowl migration the uh, folks coming in California during the depression looking for work in the fields, to the internment of Japanese Americans in World War II, to the, the building of kind of the political power of Latinos in California and farm worker organizing, all the way until the, the 1980s. He's, you know, he spends his later years living in a primitive one-room cabin, uh, kind of a mattress on the floor, surrounded by boxes of all of his writings, that most of which never get published. Right. But it, is, is organizing until, you know, working against the uh, U.S. intervention in Central America, um, up until Alzheimer's makes it pretty much impossible for him to do so. So I think the scope of his life was intriguing for me, but also the fact that he's an organizer doing all this, you know, and so his perspective um, seeing as an organizer moves through these different conflicts or upheavals, I'm telling it from the perspective of someone who's, you know, pioneering a lot of different strategies and is someone who, as an organizer, kind of was behind the scenes. And so uh, he would be involved in projects for, you know, be like the main person running a program and, and not have his name in the paper or have very few people who know that he was involved in it. Um, and so I thought it was worth excavating kind of the, the role that he played yeah. in in history. This moment does seem, you know, the political moment's totally screwed up, and I guess it, it's often totally screwed up, but um, the same sorts of issues that folks are dealing with today, you know, labor organizing, uh, the fight for 15, yeah. immigration, Trump, Latino voter registration, these are all issues that, that were central to Ross's work. And when I think about, you know, what does Ross, what can we learn from someone who was organizing in a time before social media? And what, what can he say? Why, why is he relevant today? To me, it really just reminds me of the end of, of the power of kind of face to face communication and of slowing down. He really listened to people. Uh, he was very curious about people. And I think there is so much emphasis, and, and it's, a, it's an important, and it's, it can be very powerful, a lot of the, the new organizing tools, um, you know, and social media and Twitter and Facebook and ways to share, share and mobilize. But because that's so everywhere now, that it, it's the, the power of face-to-face -face communication, I think, is still uh, incredibly important. And that when Ross, you know, he meets Cesar Chavez in 1952, Ross is organizing in East San Jose in this neighborhood called Sal Si Puedes, which means get out if you can. Yeah. Um, sort of a, you know, a, a rough, ignored neighborhood. And Chavez is very skeptical of this white guy um, in the neighborhood. Uh, and But is, as Ross kind of lays out the work he's been doing and a vision of sort of building uh, Latino political power, he becomes won over. And three years later in, a, in another living room, Dolores Huerta, uh, is planning on a career in teaching, and this is in Stockton, California. And she's also skeptical of Ross. And through these living room meetings, these house meetings, uh, she also kind of has a, the trajectory of her life changed. And so I think it's important, you know, it, I don't know if Chavez or Huerta would have, you know, it, it took more than a tweet to, to build those sorts of relationships. And, to, and so I think he reminds us that, that there are, there is still a place for, 
uh, I guess he would call old school, slower organizing. Mm -hmm. Like you said, he was sort of an activist activist. And yet uh, reading his uh, about his early life, there were really very few indicators that um, he would have chosen the path that he did. Can you identify a few key events or turning points um, in his early days that um, pushed him into activism from a pretty straight laced background otherwise? Yeah, I mean, it was it was even more than straight laced. Like his this was a, a fun to dig this stuff up. But, you know, both of his parents refer, referred to poor people as trash. When he was in grade school, the boundaries of his school changed. And so his mom, he, he grew up in an all white area, Echo Park neighborhood in Los Angeles. And uh, his mom learned that the new school that her son would be attending had black students. So on the first day of school, she marches into the principal's office and tells the principal that her son doesn't get along with black kids because he's had no interaction with them. Um, but that, you know, she's, they're raising him to stay with his own kind. And that's the way it's, it's going to be. Uh, and, you know, she was spectacularly wrong in, in the life that her son would live. I think college had a big influence on Ross. He went to USC, which was hardly like a radical school, but he became friends with this guy named Eugene Woolman, who was uh, a Jewish student from the East Coast. And first time I could find him, which he engaged in any kind of activist campaign, was targeting fraternities for not letting Jews uh, be members with. He did that with Woolman. And Woolman opens Ross's eyes to this very exciting, very uh, confusing world that's going on around this, the depression. Ross, to this point, I found this photo of Ross, like when he was maybe in high school, the first year of college, just this shirt off, muscle bound, lifting weights on the beach. And that was sort of his life at that point. He was thoroughly apolitical. And Woolman opens Ross's eyes to the depression, to people living in poverty, to Mexicans that were being deported. Both he and Woolman go to, uh, there's this massive uh, strike of citrus workers, and uh, it's, it's brutally repressed, and Ross gets to see some of that. And so I think that was a, a, a Woolman was a big influence on, on Ross. Uh, and Woolman graduates from Southern California uh, a year earlier than Ross, and volunteers with the Abraham Lincoln Brigade and goes to Spain to fight against the, the fascist and Franco and, and is killed very quickly. And Woman's death had a big impact on Ross in terms of an example of someone who had really uh, sacrificed everything. And I found this document, and based on kind of the shaking handwriting of it, I, I mean, Ross had terrible handwriting, which... You know, if you're going to write a biography of someone, next time I'm going to want to find out what their handwriting is like because it's. But uh, but one of his documents had him listing his influences, and I think he wrote it in his later years. And and right at the top was Gene Woolman, and so Gene had a big impact. Also, the the depression had an impact because he graduates and he's technically trained to teach high school, teach history, and he can't get work there, so he ends up getting a job with the government, first handing out relief checks. And then managing a labor camp for migrants uh, in in Southern California, and that's it. Turns out that it's the same camp that Steinbeck visited many times when he was de- doing research for what would become the Grapes of Wrath. And there, Ross uh, really lives with poor people for the first time in a and and sees them as sort of three dimensional people. Gets to know them, realizes he loves listening and hanging out with people. And I think that sort of sets him down the path of um, there was there was also a, a big cotton strike that he gets to witness, and he gets to witness it being crushed as well. But uh, so in college, he kind of turns to the left. But I think at this labor camp, you know, you can turn to the left and, and believe in progressive policies, but not really want to be right there in the mix. Um, you know, instead you could write policy reports or become a lawyer or whatever. And I think Ross discovered that what he loved was working with poor people, with people who are being affected by issues, and that, um, and he never really turns back from there. 
So you mentioned that, of course, Fred Ross spent so much of his time organizing among Mexican-Americans and and among Japanese-Americans who had been in internment camps. Can you talk a little bit about how this sort of white guy, who I believe you wrote never even really spoke Spanish, um, chose to make what today we'd call anti-racist work his life's calling? Yeah, you know, it's, 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 it's odd, right? It's, and he did try to learn Spanish. He tried to learn at a later age, and his kids would tell me these stories of Ross having these three-by-five like, vocab cars and how no one wanted to go driving with him because he would do the, the, his Spanish vocab while he was driving. And at one point, <laughs> at one point like, a cop pulled him over um, because he'd been swerving because he was trying to work on some, some word he had, um, and he... I think he got out of paying the ticket, um, but it, it is. I. It, it's hard to it's hard to figure out exactly what it was. Is I think he just there was first of all there was something deeply in him um, that was anti-racist, and I think that anti-racist um, tendency or instinct was what allowed him to be a, a really good organizer as well, which was that um, whether you were black, Latino, Japanese American. Um, when you hear the stories of people that worked with Ross, what they often say they appreciated or what they realized with him is that, uh, you know, he would ask other people to do a lot of work and he would assume that if he, if he's going to be working, you're going to be working and kind of, um, there was not this paternalism like, Oh, Hey, I've got the answer and let's, let's, here's the answer and, uh, sit back. And when I call on you, you can speak at the press conference or something, but otherwise, I mean, he was, he was very, he had a, a real, at his core was a belief that um, that everyone was kind of equal, and it's totally you know kind of it's a it's a cliche, but um, it's it's hard to actually live that way. And um, and I think as he he also for the for the Japanese Americans, for example, you know he had the benefit of getting up close and personal with all these folks that that um, you know that others might be calling bad names or be. Um, maligning like and he actually um, when the u.s enters world war ii when pearl harbor is bombed he at first is supportive of moving the japanese from the pacific states uh, i think mostly because he thinks roosevelt he believes a lot of the government propaganda at this point he's been working for the government for a number of years and he believes um the propaganda about how they've broken up all these cells and japanese america and you know it's all it all turns out to be complete completely false Right. But but when he goes to the internment camp in Idaho where he's working and he's supposed to be kind of running these community services, um, he doesn't really have much to do because it's you can't really organize in a in a situation like that. There's the they have no no power. But he he quickly realizes from talking to people that there's there's that the government's claims were 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 ludicrous and so. It helps as well that, that he, these aren't just categories for him of people or, or labels um, that he's, when, you're, when you get close to these issues, you, you realize, I think, you get uh, a different perspective. And so I think that helped him out a, a lot as well. Yeah. Can you talk about Ross's general approach to activism and to organizing specifically? What are some of the signature tactics that he used? And and along with that, can you talk about Ross and sort of the um, distinct lack of ideology that he seemed to display throughout his career? Um, that 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 I found both um, you know sort of confounding about him, but perhaps well suited to the type of organizing he was doing. His first year that he really is doing organizing in terms of trying to bring people together who are pushing um, to challenge other people in power in a way is, is really in 1946 and 47. And he's in the Inland Empire, which is east of L.A., very conservative area. He'll be, he'll be followed by the FBI and growers, um, open up files on him for his work there. But he, he spends that year organizing with blacks and Mexican-Americans um, around um, desegregating schools and uh, throwing out, voting out a racist city council person, uh, voting in someone else. And when he takes from that first year of experience, I think is really some lessons that, he, that stick with him for the rest of his life. One was look for the women, as I write. Like women were sort of uh, in, in those campaigns, the ones that, 
both did a lot of the grunt work, but also in public forums were challenging uh, people in power. And so that, um, in 1947, when he writes up this long report about his work for the year, that's one of the things he, he concludes is that, um, that, that, that women, in fact, are, are key to any organizing work. And that seems more common sense today and obvious uh, if you look at like the civil rights, you look at any, really any movement. Um, but, but back then for an organizer like Ross to be writing that was, you know, someone like Saul Linsky didn't have that, that instinct. Um, he also was skeptical of um, sort of established organizations that were kind of slightly removed from the issue. And so, so for example, like the um, better off Mexican Americans who own businesses who, who, you know, relied also on their, their white customer base, for example. He found that, um, that people that were too tied into the, the, that power structure might talk a good um, game, but when push came to shove, they would sort of either be neutral or, or um, stab you in the back, is what happened with him. And that it was important to go down to the, to the folks who were most directly impacted um, uh, if you wanted to, to the folks that felt the, the sting kind of the, the most acutely. Um, and that's another thing that he, he focuses on throughout his life. Um, and the looking at, thinking of social media, I mean, his, his tactic that he brings that, that's in use that I actually used in Brooklyn working on lead poisoning yeah. without even knowing that, um, that it was sort of a Ross technique, but the person who trained me had been trained by Ross at the UFW, uh, was the, the, these house meetings in which you build your, the base of your organization by using the already existing relationships that people have. So um, if you, use, you have a meeting and you ask the person to invite their family and close friends, and, which, and they do, and in that meeting you have a conversation about the work and about the campaign or whatever it is, but um, that, that ended up being a tactic that can be used on basically any campaigns. Um, and that, especially when you, I mean, for me, when you start organizing and you go out and you have all these ideas of how, how inspiring it's going to be, and then, you know, it's, it falls apart, which it always, you know, it does often. Um, to have some sort of uh, structure is... I found very important, and and Ross was very good at providing a structure so that you could you could kind of move forward, and and the house meeting um, tactic has been everything from you know Barack Obama's 2008 um, presidential campaign to you know I'm sure there are you know maybe 500 house meetings going on tonight around any number of campaigns in people's living rooms, so it definitely has spread. Yeah, he 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 did have you know I I don't know if he had. One of the questions I was trying to, you know, answer in this at a certain point uh, was, you know, was Ross ever a member of the Communist Party or because Gene Woolman was a communist and the farm worker organizers who Ross sees kind of courageously and heroically um, lead a strike of cotton workers um, with the workers in when he's at that migrant camp, they are um, communist as well. Um, I don't think he ever joined the Communist Party, and I just don't think his it, it, he just didn't find it that interesting. Uh, is my sense, you know? I'm kind of speculating a little bit here, but what he what he was interested in was getting people into rooms, um, building organizations that could kind of move in whatever way they might want to move, um, and not having necessarily long discussions about. Um, I mean, unless it came up, but like long discussions about what the economy should look like or um, he was very for someone who spent much of his life doing voter registration he also had very little interest in in kind of politicians um, you know he, he never would have been someone who spent his you know never would have been someone who really would be, get super behind any one politician I don't think um, yeah. but you know on, on one hand he's, he's not he's not ideological in a certain sense about um, you know, communism or socialism, but when he's in 1946, when he's going to city council meetings in Riverside um, and standing next to the NAACP, and uh, the, the city council has once again refused to consider a bill 
that would outlaw no white trade signs and that businesses would put up so that, I mean, white trade only signs, excuse me, um, so that only white people could be allowed in stores. Yeah. And when he stands up with NAACP and demands to kind of that the council people explain why they're doing that, um, you know, there's an idea that's 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 ideological. In a, and, and for his time, it was what was remarkable about Ross is that he did it in such a respectable kind of um, quiet way. You know, he would he would do these things. He would if this if he could make the system work, he would try to make the system work. And he he wasn't like super comfortable. He got more comfortable as he got older, I think, and as UFW became more of a social movement force. But he wasn't super comfortable with, um, you know, massive disruptions and upheavals, I don't think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting how he was sort of, uh, like you said, instinctively radical on a personal level without um, having to, you know, place an ideology around it. And on Ross's personal life, I mean, one of the other things that I found um, really complicated um, the picture of his life for for me was contrasting his amazing organizing achievements with his really tumultuous and abusive uh, home life and his uh, personal relationships with his family and and specifically the women in his life. Can you talk about that and and try to frame that um, in the context of his broader life as an activist. Ross was very upfront throughout his life in thinking that organizing had to come first and everything else came second or third. Uh, And that included, and especially, I mean, I think he was thinking about family life, that um, to to tell a a story from the book that I think illustrates this um, best, his, his first wife turns out to, he's not super present with her and she also turns out to be an alcoholic and they separate and she ends up drinking herself to death. And I don't think, um, you know, he certainly wasn't the most attentive husband at that point, but I think she was, um, you know, I'm not going to, it's not like his, his lack of attention to her caused alcoholism. In fact, they, they separate pretty early before she really falls, uh, into a, into it in a deep way. But, um, his second wife that he marries, uh, when he, Francis, who's also uh, an activist, um, when he's organizing in Los Angeles, she is struck with polio and um, she ends up surviving and um, will eventually, she's extremely determined and eventually kind of regains full movement. But she has this story um, that she told her daughter about um, when she was coming home from the hospital and Ross was supposed to. Um, there's two different versions, but essentially he was supposed to be at the house to receive her. Um, and the, the ambulance pulls up to the house, and Ross is not there. He's at an organizing meeting, and so she, she has to be returned to the hospital. Um, you know, when I heard that story, it was, like, bad enough. Like, but then I heard that, in fact, Ross would use that story when he was uh, teaching folks about organizing as a way to illustrate, you know, not only was the, the story happen, but that Ross used it as a, as a teaching tool, like this is, this is showing the, the right priorities of an organizer. So yeah, it's a complicating factor. I think someone told me early on, writing a biography, you really don't want to fall in love with the person, you don't want to hate the person. That's the two tendencies that can, that can come, that tend to happen, or can happen when you spend so much time thinking about someone. And... Um, I, I thought you know it's, I thought it was an important piece of the life to include because it's still something that that we still grapple with. I think like um, how do you? There was definitely a gender component of that at that point too. I mean, Ross could do all this work because it was assumed that women were going to his wife was going to be taking care of all uh, of the family life. But um, how do you balance the two? If you you know Ross was a, a total fanatic. He loved organizing. Um, and so, in fact, I don't think he thought of himself as sacrificing much. He thought he was, he was doing what he wanted to do. Um, other people, like his wife and, and kids, had to, had to bear the, the, sac- the brunt of that. But uh, I think we've come a long way since that. More to go, probably, but there's a much better recognition of these words like self-care and, and you know, being well-rounded and having... Um, 
uh, a more, I guess, three-dimensional life, having space for things other than your work. Um, but he certainly did not subscribe to that. And I think a lot of folks, it was interesting because I think a, he, he's, he trained a lot of people and inspired a lot of people. Um, but I think there are a fair number of people who, um, the same way you might go out and start canvassing for a group and it's like grueling and, you know, you get the pay is shitty and there's not that much support and it's kind of like sink or swim. And a lot of people sink and they kind of get burnt out. And they're like, I'm not going to try that activism thing again. Um, I think there are a fair number of people that came to the UFW who, who just could not get with Ross's program, didn't, didn't, didn't feel, weren't ready to shove every other consideration aside um, for, for the cause and, um, and who might otherwise have had real contributions to make but didn't. Like you said, Ross was always um, behind the scenes, and uh, it, it struck me that uh, he really, you know, he kind of had a lot going for him, being like a, you know, handsome and charismatic white guy who had access to a lot of power and a lot of privilege for his time, um, and, and yet he chose not to use that. How how deliberate was that um, in your view? Uh, it seemed in some ways that he was extraordinarily naive. Um, about, you know, what he could have done had he chosen to sort of hog the spotlight. And yet he seemed also um, quite calculating in some ways about um, deliberately letting others take the lead. How, how much of that was part of his style? Once he settled on the idea that people who were being affected most directly by these issues were the ones who sort of just naturally or had the, had the, the fight and who sort of morally should be the people who should be um, leading the charge, that placed him in a, in a different position. And it wasn't like he was egoless. Uh, you know, it wasn't like he was, he, he wanted to be, uh, he had dreams of, you know, he wanted to be the best organizer in the world. He wanted to, he wanted to build movements of, of, you know, thousands and thousands of people. And so, he never would have been interested in power in the way that we think like political power of his own wielding it, or he just had a real skepticism um, for concentrated power and politicians. And he had a real love for seeing the tables turned on them and for seeing that um, people who usually were out of, out of power or ignored sort of forcing other people to, to change. I think his love of the vocation of organizing and his love of seeing, I mean, it's just incredibly, it can be incredibly fulfilling and exciting to, to see people transform and to see organizations come to life and to see things change. And so that was, that was enough for him. You know, I, I, I talked to someone who hung out with Ross a bunch when Ross was in his seventies. And this is the period in which he's, he's kind of, he's retired. He's, He's trying to get his writings together. This book that he's been working on for decades is it's not going to be published. Uh, people like Saul Alinsky and Cesar Chavez have, you know, certainly eclipsed Ross. And I asked this friend who, of Ross's, did he seem, you know, bitter at all? That here he is, he's forgotten, his writing's not published. He's, and he said, not at all. Like, and I think the, the reason he wasn't bitter as far as I could make sense of it that he just he'd really enjoyed he really enjoyed the work and that in the back of his head it was okay that it, that he you know he could live with not getting his due because it also sort of made sense as an organizer that that he had he had kind of faded into the background which is where um where he felt like he should be yeah um related to that and you just mentioned Cesar Chavez um Chavez, of course, sort of famously did go down this um, sort of, uh, I don't know the best word to use for it, but this, this very um, concentrated leadership path, which was basically his downfall. Um, can you talk a little bit about Ross's relationship with Chavez? You write very sort of poignantly about how he might have been and ultimately didn't try to check Chavez when he got destructive. Yeah, I don't think there is a, a word... I don't even know if there's a, a, a 800 page book that can quite describe what happened to Chavez. Um, but um, Ross meets Chavez when he's young. He's Chavez is 25, I think, when they meet in East LA. He's, you know, he's an anonymous um, laborer. 
And Ross very quickly, it's obvious that, that Chavez has a sort of natural native intelligence. He's, he's, he will work hard. That was one of the Ross's requirements. Didn't really have any other requirement except that you were willing to put in the work. And he certainly was willing to put in the work. And when, when Chavez goes on to launch what will become the United Farm Workers, he does so with, you know, no He leaves a, a good paying job. To, to do to to start this kind of impossible dream that um, and is being told by a lot of people I think that it's you're kind of crazy to go move to this farm worker town Delano where he moves and with no real plan except you know to try to start talking to farm workers about about a, a union or about organizing yeah. but Ross was someone who really stood by Chavez and I think um, talked to it during this, this period in which Chavez is, is certainly stretching into very, going off into very uh, uncomfortable, un, uncertain territory. Ross is bucking him up and is saying, you know, he's really proud of him and he's, he's giving him whatever money he has to, to help sustain Chavez and just get food on the table for his family. And so they have, they have a, they have a, a real close relationship and, and, um, they, I, as the union grows, um, you know, especially in the in the late seventies, mid to late seventies, um, Ross is not as involved. He's, if if anything, he's mostly training organizers. Um, he's not a member of like the board of the UFW. But Chavez, uh, unlike Ross, I think has a lot of other ideas of things he wants to do with the union. Uh, he wants to create an intentional community. He wants to, he, he becomes very, very worried about people uh, kind of usurping his power. He sees threats to, to his power um, in many different areas. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the tragedies of the union uh, is that the people that Chavez sees as representing a, a threat to to the union are these very militant, um, mostly lettuce and vegetable workers in the Salinas Valley. Uh, and, um, there were, and so he and the union orchestrate a way in which um, those workers are, are kicked out of the union and also they were attempting to get uh, send a couple of farm workers onto the board of the union. Yeah. Chavez saw that as a threat. Um, and um, the the tragedy of it, I think, is that, that those were the exact kind of folks that Ross had thought were the, the people that would push issues, that were the kind of people you needed in your organization, and that, that both he and Chavez, he had sort of taught Chavez that, but Chavez felt that as well, that Chavez was, had very little time for organizations that wouldn't, wouldn't fight and wouldn't bring in people from the grassroots to, to, push, to push it forward. And... Um, you know, they there's an ugly scene in which they uh, the union keeps those workers out and kicks them out. And uh, Ross never never really has conversations with anyone, as far as I can tell, um, in which he criticizes Caesar about the the directions that the union is going um, and. Uh, it's hard, you know, it's hard to know. Chavez was, you know, so bright, so determined, um, could be very ruthless. And so it's, it's hard to, as I, as I write, it's hard to imagine someone knocking him off his game plan. Um, yeah. But um, if there was someone that, that might be able to do that a little bit, it would have been Ross, I think, because Ross, even in the years in which they weren't communicating as, much, as, as often, yeah. Um, that Ross had a had a real special place in Chavez's in Chavez's heart. And Chavez was super tight with money. Like volunteers for the UFW um, made five bucks a week, um, and they basically you know working around the clock. But when when Ross came on staff later, um, Chavez told his assistant to pay Ross whatever he asked for, uh, which I think speaks to the the. The, the privileged place that Ross had in Caesar's uh, in Caesar's life. Yeah. So to wrap up, you mentioned before that Ross did a lot of organizing work around voter registration and, and elections, even though he didn't have a ton of faith in um, 
elections and politicians in general. So, of course, right now there are a lot of debates happening about where radicals and where labor activists should be best spending their efforts, whether that is in endorsing and trying to elect candidates like Bernie Sanders or um, organizing workers or disrupting Donald Trump or anything else. Are there any lessons from Fred Ross's work for those trying to decide on priorities for their organizing? Hmm. That's a really tough question, and um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm it's it's I'm, I'm often I'm as confused by all the different things you just asked and, and <laughs> listed as as anyone. So writing 280 pages about someone that died in 1992 does not give me you know super incredible insight. But I would say that um, he would you know it's whatever you do. Uh, he has this line. The union had suffered this, this, you know, what Chavez felt was a crushing defeat in 1976. They're trying to pass a state proposition. They put all this money into it. They get crushed. And, and Ross, um, they're looking at the returns at night at a bar. And one of the, one of the UFW volunteers, uh, everyone's just devastated. And she turns to Ross and says, so what do we do tomorrow? And Ross would would re remember that many decades later as sort of the perfect response that um, you know in organizing you 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 win small things occasionally um, and and that's enough and uh, and so I think and then you keep going and for if you're looking at Bernie or any of these issues but especially with politicians that um, uh, think about what you do the next day and that. Um, you know they're all they're all sort of interrelated, um, but Ross would Ross would I'm at the very least channel I can safely channel him I think into saying that uh, you should never no matter how great a person's platform is or how much you agree with what they're saying you should never put all your eggs in that in the in that basket of one politician that um, that it's going to be people together that move that move things forward. And that was Gabriel Thompson talking about his new book, America's Social Arsonist, a biography of Fred Ross. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Arg, I wish I'd written that the part of the show where we talk about things we wish we had written but did not. My pick for this episode is called The Hidden Workforce Expanding Tesla's Factory, a Bay Area news group watchdog report by Lewis Hansen. Now, the luxury auto brand Tesla is named for the Italian genius who helped develop modern electricity, and it's become one of the leading lights of the new economy of Silicon Valley. But these days, it's brought to you by some other European names who are decidedly less celebrated. Turns out that guest workers from Eastern Europe are working under arduous exploitative conditions at one of the premier manufacturing workforces of the Valley, according to a Mercury News investigation. It says, quote, neither the contractors involved nor Tesla itself is, have accepted legal responsibility for the hiring practices, long hours, and low pay. While most of the imported workers interviewed for this story said they are happy with their paychecks, their American counterparts earn as much as $52 an hour for similar work. So what exactly is going on here? They managed to arrange this through a special work visa program known as B-1. It's supposed to be for essentially business expats who are traveling to the U.S. on business, but it's been used for some much murkier business uh, involving some Slovenian guest workers, apparently, who were brought here under fairly dubious circumstances, not really knowing what they were up for by shady contractors who are employed by companies like Tesla as part of a grand outsourcing scheme that allows them to apparently wildly underpay the workers at the bottom of the production chain. The Mercury News reports, quote, while foreign workers can obtain B-1 visas for supervisory duties, the workers at the Tesla plant were simply installing pipes and welding parts. The workers interviewed by this news organization said that they've worked on other jobs under similar arrangements around the country. So Tesla is just one slice of the bigger pie. The local building trades union suspects that its metal workers lost perhaps tens of thousands of dollars of work through this apparently illegal subcontracting and millions of dollars in wages. 
Um, this dispute is now at the center of a lawsuit brought by one Slovenian worker who happens to have suffered a grave injury on the job, and that's put him in a legal battle that has pitted him against one of Silicon Valley's best-known brands. Workers on both sides of the globe were actually the losers here. So behind all the high-tech bells and whistles of Tesla's world-class manufacturing plant, a lot of that pipe fitting and welding was done by good old-fashioned backdoor immigrant labor. They used foreign subcontractors instead of uh, domestic union workers. Now, a labor leader said that the local company lost the bid on the project in part because their labor costs and bids were higher. In other words, a race to the bottom. And to further thicken the plot, the U.S. Embassy is supposed to be overseeing the B-1 program in Slovenia, um, but it apparently dropped the ball here and either deliberately turned a blind eye or just was completely ignorant of the rules behind the visa. So the work is good by Slovenian standards and subpar by U.S. standards. Uh, Some of the Slovenian workers said they were okay with the arrangement. But a comparable local union sheet metal worker from the U.S. might have been earning as much as $42 an hour plus benefits, whereas a Slovenian counterpart might have been pulling in maybe $10 an hour. In Lesnik's case, he said that he got about 800 euros a month or about $900 and was promised another sum later down the line, which never materialized. Meanwhile, Slovenian workers regularly work 60 to 70 hours. The company apparently intended to keep both groups completely in the dark about their disparate working conditions. Whatever happens in court, even if the contractor is not held accountable for violating the visa rules, it appears that the parent company that ultimately benefits from this whole arrangement, Tesla, is floating high above the whole fray. This is due to its clever use of subcontractors. This is a tactic, of course, that is used by U.S. employers for both foreign and domestic workforces. And it allows them to get away with all sorts of misclassification violations, as well as to do an end run around labor unions. This lack of accountability, even if technically within the letter of the law, may be the biggest ethical crime of all. Unfortunately, whatever happens to the workers in a court of law, Tesla has already won in the game of profit in Silicon Valley's freewheeling so-called knowledge economy. No one seems to understand that the knowledge economy, for all of its slick promises of modernity and lean production, is actually running on a lot of blood, sweat, and tears provided by European workers who may not know the first thing about American labor law. So while Tesla may bill itself as the manufacturer of the future, it is in fact playing an old game with some new tricks. Michelle explained at the top of the show what the Obama administration's new overtime rules will do, and progressives should rightly be cheering them. But it turns out that not all progressive organizations are thrilled, as Ethan Millard in the Times points out in a piece titled, Progressive Nonprofits That Oppose the New Overtime Rules for Low-Income Workers Are Hypocrites. I tend to steer away from using the term hypocrite, preferring simply to point out that people are well wrong. But anyway, you slice it, the statement from the U.S. Public Interest Research Group, or the PERGs as they're commonly known, um, in opposition to the new overtime rules is just gross. Uh, PERGs are widely known for relying on young, idealistic workers who put in 10 or 12 hour days and are paid salaries just over the previous overtime threshold, which prevents them, of course, from making overtime. That the Obama administration may have made this model untenable is not the fault of the Obama administration or something to complain about. It actually just shows the flaws, as Miller writes, of an organizing model that revolves around exploiting and burning out young organizers. I am, of course, talking about this in the same episode as we just spoke about Fred Ross, who, as Gabe pointed out earlier in the show, famously expected 100% commitment from his organizers. But as Gabe also pointed out, we have in many ways, not enough ways, moved past that model and realized that for organizing to be a lifelong commitment, which of course Ross also expected from organizers, it needs to be compatible with having a life. That means that people should be able to make a decent living, to have time off, and to be compensated fairly if they're working overtime. The news also came out this week that Fight for 15 organizers are trying to organize their own union, a fact that should remind us that all the people working to help others win a decent wage, union rights, and a better world deserve at least what they're demanding for others. As Miller writes, quote, As we seek to disrupt the systems of corporate greed and environmental degradation, racism, and patriarchy through the work we do, we must look at our own organizations and structures and dismantle those structures for ourselves first. 
Yes, this will require more than a small change in policy for many nonprofits, but the long-term benefits of leaving the old, exploitative staffing model behind will ultimately benefit the staff of these organizations, the organizations themselves, and the people whose lives they seek to improve. And I would just add to that that expecting people to work for peanuts literally, for many, many hours, actually sets up a problematic dynamic between organizers and workers, which is that if you are recruiting people, say, right out of college, who and you want to put them in as organizers, they may be coming out of college with debt, they may be coming out with whatever. If they don't already have a lot of money, they can't afford to take an organizing job that pays you $20,000 a year. Um, And so what happens then is you end up with a a strange dynamic between the organizer and the organized, where the organizer is much more of a, uh, you know, on on a charity mission rather than somebody who actually understands and is in solidarity with the work that they're trying to do. So anyway, I could talk about this for hours, but uh, the piece is excellent. That is all we have for this week. You can find links to everything we've discussed on the Descent website. And if you are in the California Bay Area in June, you can get catch today's guest, Gabriel Thompson, at the Bay Area Book Festival in Berkeley on Sunday, June 5th at 10 a.m. He will be, of course, talking more about Fred Ross. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored and email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a Verizon striker or a Philippine call center worker, if the overtime rules will apply to you or if you've ever been an overworked, underpaid organizer. If you are in France taking part of the protests and strikes, we definitely want to hear from you. Um, You can get your fancy Descent Belabored tote bag for signing up as a monthly supporter at the Descent website. And a big, huge thank you to everyone who has donated either a one-time donation or as a monthly supporter. We really love you. You help keep us going. And as always, we will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit DescentMagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.